Welcome to Talking Property, where you get the inside information into what's going on in the Australian and Asian property markets from leading property and investment experts. Welcome to Australian Property Journal's Talking Property podcast. I'm Nelson Yap, editor and publisher of Australian Property Journal. My guest today is Benjamin Martin-Henry, Head of Real Assets Research Pacific at MSCI. Welcome back to Australian Property Journal's Talking Property podcast, Ben. Great to have you back. Thank you so much, Nelson. As always, it is an absolute pleasure to be here. Now, I guess we should get stuck right into it. Um, I should say a lot has happened, but a lot has happened in the uh, in the quarter as well. So can you share what's happening in the market or what's happened in the past quarter? I can do. Yeah, it's like mm. we were saying before, it's kind of like there's a lot happening, but there's not a lot happening. There, there's mm. so much activity behind the scenes. There's so much discussion about what's happening. But as yet, we haven't really seen a lot of this materialize into, um, into transactions uh, closing as yet. So Q1 was actually pretty slow, uh, just sort of five, around five five and a half billion dollars worth of right. uh, transactions so far in, in Q1. Obviously, it's picked up a little bit in the last couple of months now that we're in, we're in June. Mm-hmm. This was a decline of around 70% um, on the previous year. As always, though, particularly in these uh, turbulent times of ours, that more context is is needed. Last year's Q1 was a record quarter, was an extraordinarily strong quarter. So volumes are always going to look a little bit, a little bit down mm-hmm. on um on last quarter. But I think the results are, they are a little bit jarring though, and they are the worst first first quarter results since 2012. So despite that context, it, it definitely is a bit of a bit of a slowdown that we're seeing that we're seeing so far. And again, mm-hmm. full disclosure, Q1 is normally pretty pretty quiet. Um, mm-hmm because it's the start of the year. But again, compared to those long-term averages, it really is a slowdown. Um, and uh, it'd be interesting to see where the market goes from here. So, I mean, do, do we sort of have uh, an idea of what, what why it has been, you know, this the, the slowdown has been so sort of uh, prominent, uh, I guess, and, and not seen since 2012? Yeah. I, mean, I can say interest rates and all these things, but mm. what else? What else do we think is going on? I think definitely interest rates for sure, yeah. um, but investors don't like one of the biggest issues. Is investors don't like uncertainty, mm. so that's what really caused a slowdown towards the end of last year. Was the uncertainty around interest rates? Now I think there's more certainty about where interest rates are going and where they where they are. Obviously, so that kind of uncertainty has been removed. But <clears throat> the problem we have down here is that pricing is a huge problem. There is a, a quite a large gap between what buyers or buyer and seller expectations basically mm-hmm. now we do a bit of analysis called a price expectations gap where effectively we're looking to see what prices should uh, change adjust by in order to get back to long-term liquidity levels so this isn't like a forecast of what prices will fall by it's just in order to get back to those levels of liquidity what do, what adjustment do we need and for the office market for example we're looking at an adjustment of around 15 18 percent which is quite a quite a big adjustment. Right, Similar for yeah. retail, slightly higher for retail and slightly slightly lower for industrial. But even for industrial, there is this gap. And I think that's the sticking point, is that gap between what sellers are willing to take and what buyers are willing to offer. And mm-hmm. if you look at all the media reports from you know agencies and uh, publications such as yourselves, that mm-hmm. gap for offices in particular is constantly being talked about. 
and what from what we're seeing for some of the larger deals that have been announced as being in, in DD, again, that gap seems to be around that 15, 18% mark. And that's quite a quite a big gap. Um, so a couple of large offices that Dexas is selling, for example, they're rumored to be going at sort of that 15 to 20% discount to book value. That's a pretty big haircut. Mm-hmm. So that might be a reason why those deals haven't actually happened yet. They're still wrangling over those over those pricings. But that seems to be the biggest, the biggest factor we're seeing at the moment. And it's not something we're seeing globally as yet either, because <clears throat> valuations have moved a lot quicker in our overseas markets. We've noticed that from our various um, uh, performance indices in the mm. UK and the US is the values have come down quite significantly. They haven't come down in Australia at all, really. They're still they're still positive, so they're still going up effectively. Um, so we haven't seen that we haven't seen those price adjustments yet, and that may be what's holding up transaction levels. How sort of we so I suppose we're in that sort of standoff right now between mm. you know that the, the, that holding pattern. You know what do what do buyers want and what do the sellers want? The expectations. How long has that been going on in the market now? <laughs> do we have an uh, idea? Well, there's always an argument between buyer and sellers, aren't there? That's, that's, <laughs> never, that's never going to change. It's yeah. how closely they become aligned is uh, is, mm. uh, is what we need. Um, it's I would say looking at our numbers, it's going back to to uh, Q3 last year, and right. that kind of makes sense because we started to see everything slow down in Q3. And again, mm. a big reason is that is because of those interest rates. Naturally, mm. they start to really ramp up in in Q in Q2 in Q3 last year, and um, a lot of buyers, a lot of sellers were still kind of expecting, you know, 2019 prices and just not simply not going to get that. If no. the price of debt suddenly goes up, call it, you know, from whatever it is, 3% all in to 7% all in, that's more than doubling. Mm. Um, you have to adjust your pricing in order to in order to account for that. And even if you look at that, you know, that theory between a theory about bonds and property yields, which not everyone subscribes to, I understand that. Mm. When your risk-free rate is, is you know, it's higher, then some of the yields on these assets, you're you're gonna question whether or not you should be buying them at yes. those prices. So um, that seems to have that seems to be the case. And yeah, it does look like it kind of picked uh, kind of started around that Q3 uh, last so it, year. It, I mean, you know, obviously you've been looking at data sets and all these things like that for a while. So it, is there a time period before this where we were in something similar like this, uh, a situation similar? And then how long did it take for? I suppose that market to then come around to it, as you said, overseas we've already seen corrections in the UK and the US, but Australia's been just so resistant to that, right? Mm. So how long do we expect this to go on before the sellers go, all right, fine, we'll take that price, yeah. And I think that's the interesting part Mm. in this whole thing is that there doesn't appear to be a lot of distressed selling as yet. Mm. So in the US we're able to track this a lot better because we have um, debt financing over there. Yes. Um, so we can look at uh, mortgage rates and you know mortgage payments and the like on on commercial real estate. Unfortunately, we don't have that here. But what we are seeing in the U- in the US is very little signs of distressed selling. There are a couple. You know, we have seen a few. You know, there are some companies who are just simply giving back the keys on some larger assets that have been right. well publicised, mm. um, so they don't have to worry about paying the debt. Obviously, you can't really do that down here. <laughs> but as yet, there's not a lot of distress selling, and I don't think we're going to see any distress. We're not going to see a lot of distress selling in Australia either, which means this this standoff might be a bit stickier. Okay. Um, and until owners are forced to sell, 
they're not necessarily going to accept these massive discounts. If they want to just get rid of us, take some assets off the books, then sure, fine, they'll, they'll start to accept lower bids. Mm. But until there, until there is distress in the market, which again, I don't really think is going to happen, they're not necessarily just going to take any offer that, that they've got. The one possible sign of distress that we have is some of our funds are in um, one of our indices, for example, the core wholesale index. And there are certain criteria that you need to um, hit in order to maintain your status in the index. And it generally is around those gearing ratios um, where your targeted gearing needs to be below, say, 30%. Um, because the cost of debt is increasing, the value of those assets is decreasing, your cost of gearing ratio increases. Yes. So the only obviously way to raise capital is to pay is to sorry to pay down that debt is to sell assets. Hmm. So that might be the only kind of sign of possible distress in the market is when some of those funds might have to sell assets in order to pay down that debt. But again, we just don't see we don't see a lot of that as yet. So this might be a a, a pretty sticky situation. But it is going to be very interesting to see what happens in those June revaluations. They're obviously going to get down in the next few weeks. And yes, going to be announced for the annual be, reports. Hmm. Yeah, they are going to be fascinating. If if values start to move, we'll see a lot more activity in the market, I think. Yes. I do think the second half of the year, we're going to see more activity anyway. Um, yeah. The market can't simply just stop. Um, no. It's not and annoying. <laughs> it is. It is. And, and you know, just from the reporting side from ours, every time we now write a listing story or a major sale, we, we use the dry spell or drought all the time. Mm. You know? And it feels like that because it's, uh, um, you know, covering a recent sale with obviously vicinity selling a 50% uh, in mm. Broadmeadow Central, we say that it broke the drought because we haven't seen a deal like that f- for a while. Um, and and this is where I want to sort of now look at talking about the, you know, the word everyone's using right now, which is, price discovery um, yeah and there's a lot of talk there's a lot of um there's a uh, that's the new uh, uh, word i should hashtag that i think um price discovery and bifurcation <laughs> as well that's coming up too a lot yes yeah so it, it's making it difficult right because there's not a lot of transactions going on um what are you seeing in that in in the market or what are you hearing um, I, again, there's a lot behind the scenes. Mm. There does seem to be just this wrangling between what buyers and sellers are willing willing to accept. And mm. I think people forget just how, you know, relatively speaking, how small Australia is as a, nice. as a market. And because we have such large players for a small market, um, it's very consolidated. So if one company sells an office at a 20% discount, then they're kind of resetting their own values there mm-hmm. because they are making the market. Mm. Um, and I think that's kind of the problem as well. As soon as they accept these big discounts, then their their whole portfolio gets written down, their share prices get written down. So it is a bit of a balancing act. So it, it is it is does appear to be proving a bit tricky for these guys to dispose of some of these assets at, at prices that they that they want. But mm. what we are seeing is I'd always say it's actually I think I actually wrote it this morning. Um, we always, you know, we hear the phrase "every cycle is different." Whenever a yes. cycle ends, and this is accurate for the, for the most part, but if you dig into the numbers a little bit, it, it might just surprise people how often history repeats itself. As investors tend to repeat the same kind of patterns, yes, and we are seeing that at the moment in in who's buying. So institutions, cross border players, listed players, they're all shut up shop. It's all mm. very, very quiet. There's stuff happening in the background, I know, but by and large, it's, it's very, very quiet. 
Whereas look at the private buyers. They're still extremely active, mm. particularly in that retail space. Um, private players tend to be a bit more opportunistic. They're a bit more nimble as well. Mm. Um, and it's easier, sometimes it's easier for them to get deals across the line because they don't have to, you know, they don't have to appease shareholders and, and, and the like. So they tend to be a bit more nimble. And we, we saw that in the GFC as well. Yes. With private investors reduced their acquisition levels by about 32% compared to 2007. Hmm. Whereas you look at REITs, they they fell by about eighty percent. Yes. And cross border institutional, even domestic institutional, basically fell away. They almost wholly abandoned the market. And we saw the same thing happen during in twenty twenty as well. The listed players and the overseas buyers, the market dried up for them. They stopped buying, but the private buyers continued to buy. Again, their levels did adjust slightly, but they continued to buy, hmm. and their market share increased exponentially over that period as well. So those guys tend to be a bit more nimble and they're happy to act in these kind of moments of uh, periods of flux. Um, and we're seeing that now again with the private buyers making up around 60% of transactions so far this year. So right. it's a, it is, a, again, it's a big increase and they are looking at the likes of more opportunistic players. You know, hotels are becoming quite um, popular again because um, of this whole idea that we're going to see a lot more revenge spending and a lot more international travels are going to come to Australia again. Mm. But also the, Values adjusted significantly in 2020 and they haven't come back yet. So again, big discounts to book value. Same for retail. You mentioned again, vicinity selling um, Broadmeadows. Again, mm. there's still, that went at a, I'm not sure what the book value for that was. Um, and it depends what book value. If that mm. book value was December 2022 book value, then sure, it might look like it's on par. Yes. Um, but if you compare it to sort of mid-2019, it's probably a significant discount to, mm. to book value. Um, and again, that went to a private investor. From memory, yes. Was it, yes. Uh, Nikos. So Nikos property, it, yeah, yeah. It's those guys that are that are active and they're still buying. Um, so that's kind of what we're seeing at the moment, and I'm, I'm probably going to do a story about it as well because it, we just are seeing those privates get back into the market or continue to buy into the market in exactly the same way as we saw during during the GFC. Mm. Let's take a short break with a message from our sponsor, MSCI. Our micro to macro market data and portfolio management tools power more informed decision making across the investment process. Our real asset solutions enable clients to more effectively identify opportunities, conduct pre-deal due diligence, analyze performance and risk, and build more sustainable multi-asset class strategies. Let's sort of dwell into the the sectors a bit. Um, how did they each perform? You said obviously hotels have been very popular. Um, what's happening in offices, industrial, retail, the cores and hotels? Yeah, so there's not a lot to differentiate between the core sectors. They're all well down on mm. Q1. There was, again, they were always going to be well down. Um, yeah. I think industrials hurting the most just because they were going at such record levels. That they always had to be had always to slow had to be down. Adjusted. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So standard joke I use is 2020 was a record year. 2021 doubled that record year. So it's it's pretty hard to continue to go at that pace. The market's just mm. not there for it. Um, but I'm sure you've heard as well that there was a lot of industrial product that was put on the market last year and it simply didn't sell mm. um, because those those the pricing was too high. And I think industrial is in that kind of weird place where sure it's still it's still a well desired asset, but it is kind of getting a double whammy where pricing peaked. And what's been driving industrial has been retail, you know, online yes. retail spending. But of course, with inflation going through the roof, interest rates going through the roof, people's disposable income is significantly reduced. And that yes. will impact industrial. So industrial has seen the sharpest slowdown. 
Um, but again, those elevator levels were always going to kind of make it look like it was um, it was seeing a sharp slowdown. And I suppose um, too now, now that we're not in lockdown anymore, people aren't doing mm, online shopping as much, right? So they exactly. go, yeah, they're heading outside, uh, which is a good thing. Yeah, precisely. And to shop, yeah. Mm, mm. yeah. So the industrial was always going to have a bit of a um, a bit of a weird year. I, I kind of said at the start of the year, and I don't like making predictions because, you know, when they're wrong, I, I can't really back them up, um, <laughs> saying that the industrial, in terms of the overall performance, um, looking at one of our MSCI indices, industrial might end up being the best performing property sector for the year. Right. But hands down, it will see the sharpest slowdown for the year mm. as well. Because we're looking at, you know, just 18 months ago, we had, uh, total returns for industrial were thirty percent. Wow! So that's that has to come that that is coming down. It's still positive. Yeah. It's all fine, but it's mm. going to it's going to slow down significantly. And again, I wouldn't be surprised looking at our March results. Industrial was returning around ten percent, which was more than and office was three, retail was five. So it was more mm-hmm. than double those ones. But it's coming off uh, compared to December twenty twenty one. That's down twenty one percentage points. So again, it's it has to slow down. It was always yeah. going to slow down. So it's hard to read into those numbers too much. Um, retail's doing pretty well. Again, slow down. Not much to pick between the two, but retail seems to be the one that's it's holding up a, a bit better over the last couple of years. And again, I think it's because of those significant write downs that we saw in in 2020, and uh, buyers are able to get pretty significant discounts. And I always say this about retail. People are probably bored of me saying this, but Retail needs to be looked at in a, in a different way to what most global investors look at, where they just see big department stores going yes. bust. Mm. We don't necessarily have that issue in Australia. We've got superbly performing retail assets in large format retail, neighborhood shopping centers, and even sub-regional for, for a period um, in 2020, 2021, performed extremely well. And yields on neighborhoods were um, compressing sharper than industrial. Mm. So those kind of two asset classes, large format retail neighborhood, and even Bunnings, we saw more yield compression in those sectors than we did in the industrial sector. Yes. So people need to kind of get away from this whole thing that retail is terrible. Some yes. retail is, and some retail is <laughs> fantastic. And if you mm. happen to get into the fantastic one two years ago, you're laughing. Mm. So there's still a significant amount of investment in retail at the moment. And like you mentioned before, with the vicinity center deal, most of the larger deals that have happened so far this year are in that retail space. So there still is appetite for for investors. Uh, sorry, for um, retail by by certain investors. Now, office is that that funny one where it is in this massive state of flux. This whole working from home thing and yes, future of offices. You know, we hear stories out of the US where you've got is it sixty Wall Street, one of the ones yeah. in Wall Street where it's been vacant since twenty nineteen, and it's a two billion dollar asset. So it was a two billion dollar asset, and it's been effectively vacant for the last three and a half years. Mm. Similar issues with offices in San Francisco, where they're now trading at sort of an 80 to 90% discount to book value. Mm. We don't have that issue as yet here. The discounts people are talking around around that 15 to 20% mark. Um, and I think the future of the office is uncertain, but by and large, it has a place, it has a role to play. And I think investors yeah. still see that as well. Um, and they're still willing to buy, but again, they they don't want to buy it at full price. You know, there are issues here. They want they want discounts, and maybe we won't get back to pricing levels we saw three years ago. Not sure. Mm. Um, but by and large, we still see that some investors are happy to play in that space. But again, they want value for money. So office volumes have held up reasonably well. Um, 
And if we look at what is kind of pending, you know, some of those offices we talked about before, One Market, 44 Market, et cetera, these are big mm. chunky assets. So when they do sell, or hopefully if they do settle um, in the near in the near future, um, we'll start to see those office volumes um, pick up again. And and I think office is going to surprise on the upside. I think office and retail will surprise on the upside this year. With, in terms of with transaction the the office market, I mean the office transactions. Eh, what are the current or oh, in, in the previous quarter that we're, that we're looking at? What have been transacting? Is it prime assets, secondary assets? What what's the appetite? It is, it is mostly prime. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a heap of appetite for the, the lower-grade assets. Um, there's, a, there's a reason for that. There's a, sorry, a number of reasons for that. It's, if you look at any Occupy survey that any of the major um, agencies have done over the last few years, the, yes. the most important factor when deciding, uh, when choosing an office is indoor environmental quality. That's always number one. Now, I can imagine now if you did it this year, that would still be number one, but with a significant gap between itself and the next best place criteria mm-hmm. because of recent things such as COVID, such as cleanliness. You know, we still have a cleaner coming around four times a day doing doing cleaning in our building, yeah. and our building is not particularly good. Mm-hmm. But you're not going to get that in lower-grade assets, and you are going to pay for that as well. So um, you are going to move into more premium places, premium um, premium buildings. Um, for that level of service, and um, with the advent of all these new ESG criteria as well, you know certain targets that either individual companies are mandating or governments are mandating, yes, or even tenants are mandating. So the say Australian government, for example, can't tenant a building that's less than four and a half star neighbours. I think that's moving right. to five at some point soon. Yes. Um, in order to decarbonize these assets or retrofit these assets, it's going to cost a, a lot. So buying a, a secondary grade asset and then retrofitting it is going to cost a lot anyway. But given mm. the supply constraints we have at the moment with regards to materials and also labor and then inflation running rampant, the cost of doing this is significantly higher. Mm. So you are taking a bit of a punt at buying some of these um, secondary grade assets. So you haven't seen a lot of them transact as yet it's not said it can't, can't be done i'm sure it can be done i'm sure there's some very good investors up there that, that make a habit of doing this um buying up lower grade assets and then, and then uh retrofitting and flipping them for for decent profits i'm sure it's going to be done but as yet we haven't really we haven't really seen that too much and if you also look at tenant movements there's a lot of movement because rents are still pretty low and incentives are very high like in sydney i think they're averaging around 35 percent which is pretty high um yes. I think at the end of 2019, incentives were in Sydney were around 18, 19%. So yeah, I was going to jump. say about that. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're looking to move, um, you can get pretty good terms at the moment to move into a better quality asset. Um, so we're seeing more tenant movements into these assets. And obviously, if these buildings have a long whale, then of course, they're going to look highly desirable to, to, to buyers as well. So definitely mm-hmm. isn't more that A that grade premium space. Not to say they don't have their own problems. We know Market, 44 Market, for example, which is rumored to be selling, has a very short whale. The two major tenants are moving out next year. So there are problems with these assets as well. But by and large, we're seeing more activity in that top end than the uh, lower end. And um, okay. And what about uh, in the hotel sector? We talked about that very early. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, early I missed on. that. Sorry. Um, yeah. Got too wrapped up in offices. I do like it. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously we've um, seen, you know, Tatarang make the big, uh, yes. uh, acquisition in Sydney. Um, what else have we seen around the place? Well, uh, hotels have, have had an absolute killing the last sort of couple of years. I think we've mm. seen 
around over three billion dollars since um in uh, sorry three and a half billion dollars in, in 2022 that's a that's a pretty strong year for that's a very strong year for for office transactions and indeed we actually saw some yield compression in um hotels sorry not offices hotels in the last um 12 to 18 months which is you know unusual in this inflationary environment <laughs> um and yeah most of the we're seeing a lot more activity in in cbd offices Yes. Sorry, hotels. Hotels. Because again, we're expecting to say have more business travel um, and more international travel. So we're seeing investors get into that CBD hotel market a bit more. Um, but then a couple other ones. I saw Sheraton, Grand Mirage on Gold Coast is um, exchange yes. the other day, mm. around 190, 200. So again, significant, um, a, a good price for that. I'm sure slightly below. Uh, book over a couple of years ago, mm. um, but still a good asset. And obviously, we saw towards, towards the end of last year, we saw Hilton sell in, in Sydney. Um, but Sofitel in Brisbane as well went for around that $200 mark. So, mm. there are some decent sized hotels that have been um, sold. And of course, the bigger one, obviously, Waldorf Astoria down in um, uh, Alfred Street in, in, in Sydney. That's mm. a half a billion dollars there on a forward funded basis. So, we are seeing some big, chunky hotel assets sell. And then you still have this, this sort of smaller ones knocking around, uh, you know, the La Monte in Sydney, for example, or a couple of um, couple of regional ones too. So there does seem to be more appetite for those CBD hotels, um, but there still is a lot of appetite for some of those more um, more regional, more holiday hotels as well. Not just the CBD business travel hotels, but hotels that you and I will visit when we when we can take a holiday, Nelson. Eventually. <laughs> this job does not allow for holidays. Oh, it is. It's lots of activity in the background. Yes, exactly, exactly. And my phone's always pinging every time I supposedly <laughs> go on holidays. I have to. I don't know how to switch off. Um, <laughs> Mark never sleeps. No, it never sleeps. Uh, but what about? Um, I know we always say this, and uh, the investors in that sector will probably scream at us: the alternative real estate. Uh, <laughs> they'll say. You know, we're not alternative. We're becoming mainstream. Yeah, yep. The childcare centres, the seniors living or aged care, um, medical centres, petrol stations, etc. Whatever, well, whatever we can throw into that uh, alternative mm. space storage. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Well, I'll, I'll apologise for everyone. For us in this case, I always preface yes. this: alternatives are simply what we classify as alternatives. Yes. I know for a lot of investors, it's their bread and butter. Yes. But. For us, we're still classifying certain ones as, al- as alternatives. <laughs> um, they're kind of at the best of the market as well, where things are slowing down, of course. Um, mm. it, it simply is, it's going to impact every single sector, and we are seeing that in the alternative space as well. There's still this stuff going on. There's still a lot of activity in pubs, of course. Um, they definitely are the alternative stalwart in Australia. Mm. Um, we've seen probably $8 billion worth of pubs transact over sort of the last four years, four or five years. So an awful lot is, is going on. But it, it, everything is, is slowing down and there's going to be that whole price discovery between buyers and sellers for every single sector, um, unfortunately. Yes. Um, so we have seen significant slowdowns in that in that space. I think the only one we haven't really seen much of a slowdown is kind of that student accommodation, really. Yes. Which is really, okay. it's, it's picking up again. Um, and obviously, the, the Chinese government decreed or announced, sorry, I should say. Yes. That, what did they say? They that, have to, um, it has to be in face, uh, sorry, face to face learning. You, if you yes. did it online, it doesn't count. They won't, they won't recognize the degree. it. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So that, so we were expecting well, an influx of around 40,000 Chinese students or something in, in, in Q1. So right. 
Um, student housing has suddenly picked up in popularity again after a couple of very very quiet years, which is which is good. We're kind of going from that flip side where we had vacant student housing buildings in sort of 2020, completely empty, mm-hmm. to now there's no space at all for student accommodation. No, and, and big... they're going into the private market to look at properties or to look yeah, at Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Um, and unfortunately, we did see the construction really dried up over the last few years because there was such uncertainty around what what is going to happen to student housing if borders remain shut. Mm. Um, so there was no real, there isn't a big pipeline to kind of plug that gap or alleviate some of those pressures. Um, so what that, that, that does mean is investors are trying to buy up student housing where available because um, there's such a high need for it. So that's really the only alternative sector where we've seen um, volumes kind of increase on uh, on last year. Yes. Childcare is still going quite nicely though, but again, everything's kind of down on um, on last year. But as I said before, I expect back into this year, once this whole price discovery phase sorts itself out, we'll start yes. to pick up an activity again. Do you have sort of the – because I'm curious in terms of the yields for for some of these alt, alternative mm. assets. Um, I, I mean, I we obviously we cover a lot of transactions, but I noticed more recent transactions that we're covering now that the childcare centre yields have expanded. I think they were around 4.8 or something like that on average, uh, you know, a yeah. year ago. And where are they yeah. now? Yeah. yeah, probably. So toward mid twenty twenty two, I mm. guess that was they were kind of on average looking at our numbers around four point nine, four point eight, yes. four point nine. They pushed up a little bit, um, probably around that five point one, which is right. you know it's it's not a lot of movement, but it is a little bit of movement, and mm. it kind of goes with again with every other sector except hotels where we are seeing a little bit of yield expansion. So they're probably sitting around that <clears throat> around that five point five point one. Um, which again is a, is a bit up, but compared to sort of two years ago where they kind of averaged in six six point two, that's a pretty that's already a pretty significant compression cycle. Mm. So again, with a lot of these um, smaller sectors, we interested to see if they get back to those if they expand out to those levels that we saw a couple of years ago, or if they have effectively been been re-rated. Um, and we saw the same thing with sort of service stations; they have expanded the last twelve months or so as well. Yes, so they're sitting just below that kind of six percent mark as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't think there's only really two sectors that have been immune from yield expansion. That is hotels and um, actually neighbourhood shopping centres are the only mm-hmm. two that we saw in Q1 that uh, that compressed. Everything else expanded, unfortunately. So, yeah, well, I, I suppose now that comes back to the um, the price gap expectation. Uh, sort of we t- we touched on this earlier, and we and we touched on this at the last podcast um you know when you 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 I, I think i brought it up first i noticed it was quite an interesting statistic um what has changed since you know our last recording for the price gap expectation for industrial and offices are uh, industrial still yeah. over obviously yeah no it just got worse um mm. industrial you're kind of looking at a sharp massively sharp decline so in q2 in 2022 the gap was around plus 20 right um, Whereas now it's sort of minus 15. So that's a sharp Whoa. decrease. Okay. So the, yeah. Again, uh, people may disagree, but I, I'm a firm believer in gravity and generally what goes up must come down. Um, <laughs> and the industrial, we've certainly seen it because it was such riding at such, uh, such highs, it had always had to come down. Um, mm. So again, it's going to see a very sharp, uh, very sharp change. And that's what, certainly what we've seen. Um, 
retail is probably the worst. The gap there is around 20%, which I am a little bit surprised by that number just because of how significant the write-downs in, in retail were. Yeah, you've talked about this in the past where yeah. you, know, you said they've sort of moved, I suppose, corrected with the market cycle. So it's interesting. Yeah, so I'm a little a little bit surprised that investors still want significant discounts, but hey-ho, um, is what it is. Mm. Um, and if we look at back what happened in 2020 using this analysis, that gap was for retail was uh, minus 30, which wow. is... Yeah, you know, okay. we saw capital values decline around twenty three percent. So it's pretty, pretty, uh, pretty close. Um, those numbers tie up quite well. So yeah, I was a little bit surprised by retail um, and office, as we talked about before, kind of sitting around that 16 percent mark, which is good because that's exactly what seems to be rumored in all these articles that are that are flying around, um, saying this is what this is the discount that buyers want on certain assets that we're mm-hmm. that we're seeing. Now, the problem we have with the pricing at the moment is, um, <clears throat> and I suspect this is another reason why deals are taking a little bit more time to, to to exchange for some offices, is you can kind of play with the numbers a little bit. You can put in rental guarantees and capex spends and all to kind of make those uh, sale prices look a little bit higher than they than they are. So that's that's an issue we're kind of grappling with at the moment, saying this is the announced sale price. But if you really strip out all these rental guarantees and the like, you actually see that sale price come down. A yes. little bit more, so it's a it's a it's a hard time to get like, to get an accurate reflection about what's going on, but it certainly seems like so far our price expectations gap indicator is pretty much spot on to what's being um, what's being discussed in the market, and uh, none of it's particularly particularly positive. <laughs> so yeah, you, and you mentioned you know to get into the nitty gritty and look at the details and and find out the pricing and everything like that, and it's hard to sort of gauge. So how has that? Um, that brings me to the next question. How has that ha- impacted valuations? Um, you know, mm, uh, yeah, constant uh, source of discussion and, and debate in the market at the moment because <laughs> our valuations haven't haven't moved, and I know APRA was taking a swing at um, unlisted real estate because of the disconnect between unlisted real estate and listed real estate. Right. Well, there's a couple. I mean, there's a couple of arguments there. I mean, if you take property and then chuck it in a read and then list it, you're going to be subject to the volatility of the stock market. That's that's how it works. Whereas yes, the underlying right. asset is not is not subject to that volatility. So mm. you don't. There's always going to be a bit of a gap. Has the gap been too wide? Potentially. Now we saw with the the read index last year for industrial it was down around 35 percent or what have you based on pure share price, whereas industrial capital growth, the same period was about seven, like positive seven. So that's a that's a heck of a discount or a heck of a gap. Um, I'd expect that to kind of realign this year. Mm. Um, looking at our March results, which to be honest, I don't pay too much attention to because not a lot of uh, assets are externally valued in March, but values were still were still positive. Um, on an annual basis, the only one we saw a decline was actually offices. Office capital return was down 1.2% for the 12 months to March 2023. So again, that's that does show that the, the uh, valuations are adjusting, but they're adjusting a lot slower than uh, other markets globally. And that seems to be a, a big source for the debate or big reason for the debate is that we're seeing in the UK, for example, values fell 20% last year. Okay, um, yes. And the US were on the same kind of declining path. But the, the issue with comparing different markets is there are di- generally different valuation methodologies. In Australia, we tend, values tend to use transactions as the best indicator for what uh, value they should put on an asset. And as we know, mm-hmm. the transaction market is extremely quiet. So yes. there's not a lot of evidence for them to point to. 
Whereas we look in the UK, the valuation methodology is slightly different where they use more of a sentiment. They have a sentiment component in their valuation. So effectively, mm-hmm. if you and I go to the pub and start talking about what the heck's going on in the property market and we're both very, very depressing, oh, it's all, it's all terrible, it's all plummeting, values are falling, they have to actually kind of write that into the valuation. Uh-huh. So it, it tends to be a lot, a lot quicker and a lot sharper movements. Uh, whereas we tend, we just don't have that. So our valuations are a lot more, a lot more smooth. Um, and if you look at say the UK market, looking at our monthly indices, uh, the market has it hasn't bounced back, but it's flat. So we mm. they've had the big price decline, and now we're on an even keel again. So it's already recovering, or it's already bottomed out before we've even um, started to slow down. Right. So it's it is hard to compare different markets, and it's because the methodology is a bit different. But I'm very interested to see what's going to happen in the June values because there is more evidence in the market. Um, even if nothing settles, the discussion is these have exchanged or these are under DD and discounts at twenty percent. Therefore, valuations have to reflect some kind of change. So uh, it's going to it is going to be interesting to see what happens. It will be. It will be. We'll know in a month's time when the the yeah. annual reports start flying in thick and fast. Whether the first thing I think all the all of us will be looking at will be the independent property valuations. <laughs> mm, exactly. Exactly. Yes, I think there's going to be a lot of pouring over over reports. Um, yes, and I'm anxious. Yeah, and the I'm impact on their now. gearing ratio too, no doubt. Hmm. Yeah, it's kind of it's one of those things where um, discussions are taking place. Like, how is this gearing ratio calculated? How what goes into it? Whereas you didn't have these discussions four years ago. No one cared too no. much. It just kind of took care of itself. But now it's like, oh, actually, we need to get to the nitty gritty of this and find out what's 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 driving this and what's happening because it's starting to become a bit of a not necessarily a concern, but it's starting mm. to be becoming noticeable that some you know some companies are pushing these these levels and yeah. The annual reports, most of these companies, some of them tend to hide the, their gearing levels. Um, you can find it, and others yes. come straight out and say, This is the gearing I've level. I've experienced that before. Yeah. Trying to calculate <laughs> it sometimes is like, Oh, geez, this is hard. <laughs> A lot of footnote yeah. reading. You've got to Thanks go into for it. for making our job harder. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And yeah. So um, various models trying to look at that. I'm like, Oh, goodness sake, guys, just put it front and center, will you? Make my life yeah. easier. We're going to find um, it anyway. All right. Yeah. yeah. But that'll, uh, that'll be interesting, those ratios. Let's take a short break with a message from our sponsor, MSCI. Our micro to macro market data and portfolio management tools power more informed decision making across the investment process. Our real asset solutions enable clients to more effectively identify opportunities, conduct pre-deal due diligence, analyze performance and risk, and build more sustainable multi-asset class strategies. The next one I want to look at was liquidity. Um, mm. You know, you mentioned in Australia. I think I looked at the report. There, it remains quite a good, you know, market when it comes to liquidity. Yeah, it's a it's a weird one. That um, it was. I got a question this morning, an internal question about how because I'm looking at buy types and how um, how certain buy types are pulling away from the market, like we were talking about those cross border institutional investors and, and the REITs. Mm-hmm. Our liquidity scores kind of um, there's a few measures that go into there's absolute measures which is the number of buyers and total volume and then there's some relative ones which is looking at who's buying so when the bigger guys are still buying it tends to mean the market is still quite active yes. what we're seeing at the moment is the bigger guys aren't buying it's the private buyers that are buying 
So we're getting a lot of good questions saying, how on earth is Sydney still ranked the number one most liquid market globally, <laughs> even though you're, the bigger buyers aren't buying? Well, that's a good yes. question. <laughs> I don't fully <laughs> know. Um, Sydney is extraordinarily liquid. It is still the most liquid market globally and has been for the last two quarters, which is quite surprising. It does it is. Surprise, surprise a lot mm. of people. Um, and again, I think it comes back to the size of our of our market. So Sydney in Q1 accounted for around 50% of all transactions in Australia. Wow. Um, yep. Which is a little concerning. Like most mm. of the markets globally, it's not that consolidated in, in one particular market. Mm. Um, so Melbourne, for example, is down around 85%. And that's our second city. And the volumes really haven't recovered there. So if our second city is showing significant declines on values. It is a bit of a concern that the market is not as good as perhaps mm-hmm. our scores are telling us. Yes. Um, but on the flip side, it does mean that Sydney will rank highly because all the investments going into Sydney effectively mm. in the country. If you want to get into Australia, people just buying in Sydney. So that might be why um, Sydney is still number one. Um, but if we do look globally, there's no doubt the world is slowing down. Um, out of the 155 markets that we, that we, do liquidity scores for 138 of them fell liquidity fell wow. in the first quarter of 2023 yeah. um, flat for nine i think they increased for a, for a couple of smaller ones now these are levels we have not seen since big surprise gfc mm-hmm. so i mean history like i said before it, it does often repeat itself um and that's certainly what we're seeing at the moment but i guess the good news for australia is yes sydney is still seen as a pretty pretty important destination for not just domestic capital but I admit there hasn't been a lot of cross-border activity in Australia yet. Q1 is always the quietest quarter for, for cross-border activity in Australia. Um, but reading, you know, some some astute articles from publications such as yourself, there does seem to be a lot of offshore investors circling assets. They just haven't yes. finalised them yet, so they won't fit into my numbers as yet. But I fully expect there to be um, uh, a lot more activity from cross-board investors in the next six months and keep that liquidity level high and hopefully you'll remain number one. Yeah, it will be interesting to watch because I suppose, um, you know, it always happens where all the money goes into Sydney first and then they go, all right, there's not much to buy now. And then they go, okay, now we'll look at Melbourne, Brisbane, da-da-da, the other cities, et cetera, et cetera. So perhaps that that might happen if the trends repeat themselves again. Absolutely. And, you know, like I said, history... It's amazing how often history does actually repeat itself. Yes, absolutely. These types of things. Now, um, you know, looking at now coming to a close, but, you know, it will be, I suppose, not me doing my job if I didn't mention Bill to Rent. Hey. <laughs> what had, so much has happened, right, In since so we last much. spoke. Uh, <laughs> the Australian government announced the reform exactly. hooray <laughs> for all the foreign hooray. investors that, that took us seven years of lobbying to get that done yes yes <laughs> yes um how will this sector now evolve in the coming years i mean are, are we going to see this become the next core along offices along you know standing side by side with offices industrial retail hotels will this will this happen i certainly expect it to over mm. the years develop in that kind of way and i always point to the us and yes it's a very different market it is far more established but multifamily is the largest sector in the us it's the largest investment sector it always outstrips offices and everything else mm. um so it is it is developing it's obviously extremely new in australia but the recent tax changes has 
Um, we've been a bit of a boon for the sector. There's so many, so many more projects have been announced. I yes. don't necessarily it's think been. that mm. the MIT issue stopped um, investment happening. And if you look at most of the assets that mm. were under development, they were generally were backed by overseas buyers anyway. Um, so I think a lot of these plans, they're already in place and they're expecting this change to happen. Mm. Um, it's just now that they've all been announced that this is what we're doing. It's like you don't, the tax regime changed the next day all these projects have been announced. There's no way those projects are suddenly found overnight. <laughs> yes. they were, they've, been, <laughs> they've, yeah. they've been in the works for a while. So this Planning is takes a while. Yeah, yeah as we know. Um, so yeah. they're already in the works, but now seems like a good time to announce them. And it also mm. might mean that some of the domestic parties that have actually had these plans in mind for the last couple of years are now looking for capital partners yes. and looking to offshore capital partners. Um, and I think it's only, it's only, it, I can't see how this doesn't help the sector, given that we are, Australia is a capital importer. Mm. Um, and by and large, in any given year, most uh, about 35% of transactions are done by overseas investors. And that's just transactions. We can't track the, the capital that's been given to domestic parties in order to act on these transactions. It's extraordinarily hard unless it's announced. But we know the bigger guys, the likes of Dexas, Charter Hall, they get a lot of their funding from offshore. Yes. So I've no doubt this will be a real boom for the sector. And we're seeing a lot more players that have been a bit more uh, reticent about getting into the sector. Now they're starting to announce that they're partnering up or they're looking at, they're looking at filter and assets. Um, so there's, it's great. There's a lot more, there is a lot more um, activity in this space. And I, don't ex- I expect it to only grow a lot more. I was actually having a bit of a bit of a play last night because you know I was I was bored. There's nothing interesting on on TV, and I was just looking at um because everyone everyone talks about I myself talk about how stable multifamily uh, returns are in, in the US and it's a, yes. in, in the UK and it's a big reason why people are going to invest in it in Australia. But I've never actually put the numbers to it, so I thought, oh, how about I should put some numbers to it? And if you just look at so I was just looking at 10-year performance, so looking at 10-year total returns and 10-year standard deviation, more importantly, so measure the volatility. Mm. So US and UK multifamily, 10-year um, returns around that 8 9% mark um, yes. compared to UK and US offices where it's around that 5% mark. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, the volatility is extraordinarily low. So the 10-year standard deviation, I know we're getting very technical here, but the volatility between... Um, for for UK built to rent, for example, is around four. It's the lowest out of all the sectors in, right. in the UK and also the US. So if you build a chart on this, you kind of want multifamily to sit smack bang in the middle, the lower middle. So reasonable return, very low volatility. Yes, that's kind of why you invest in this sector. If you look at industrial, very high returns over the last, uh, very high ten year return because of the last three years. The US industrial sort of 15, 15%, UK sort of 14%, very, very high 10-year annual returns. But the volatility is off the chart because yes. obviously in the last few years it's been extremely high, whereas you know 10 years ago it was extremely low. Yes. So you get those big booms and busts in some of these core sectors. You don't get that in the built around multifamily space. It is almost purely that income play. So particularly in the heightened periods of um, flux like now, it's a great asset class to, to get into. So I think it's only going to develop down here and it's kind of that missing piece of the core sectors compared to other markets because we all go on about built rent being nascent, um, yes. fledgling, emerging, <laughs> but it's it's not in the rest of the world. It's long established. It just hasn't hasn't been done here for a number yes. of reasons. Um, 
So now that it's coming to Australia, I, look, I can't say it's not going to it's not going to boom. It gives overseas investors another market to get into their favourite sector, just in another market, another stable market. And if you look at what's going on in the residential market in Australia, obviously it's um, in a bit of a pain point with extraordinarily low vacancy rates and very high yeah, rents. Yeah, I was going to touch on that. Sort of, mm. I, I suppose when you look at it that way, um, it, it, you know, a lot of people say built rent's not going to be the silver bullet that solves everything, no. and it, of course not. But when you have got record low vacancy rates of under one percent in the you know, major capital cities, and then you have um, the government saying, "Oh, we're expecting," I think it was a four hundred thousand um, yeah. people to come in the next uh, two years. I believe it was eighteen um, months or so. Eighteen yeah. months. Yes. Where are we going to put them? Yeah. Exactly. Right. <laughs> So it, it, it's any the housing choices just you and of course we we talked about this when we recorded this you know during a long time ago now lockdown <laughs> where, <laughs> oh, uh, where a lot of people were es- yes escaping from the city um, mm. they're now coming back um, into the city yeah. you know into the metro areas so it's we're in this yeah we're in this period where the population will continue to grow and Australia continues to it needs to attract. Um, the uh, the bright minds around the world to come live here and work here, you know, the skilled migrants. So mm. it's hard to see how housing is not, uh, you know, whether in the form of built to rent or private apartments, et cetera, et cetera. It's hard to see it not um, not evolving or not growing further um, when mm. you think about that. Yeah. No, I totally agree. And it's, I mean, I've been covering built rent for about six years, seven years now in Australia. And I often get people tell me, oh, it's not going to work in Australia. We're too different. It's like, we're not as transient as the US. Okay, that's, that's one aspect, fine. But mm. it, it, people overcomplicate it. Ultimately, it's just residential. It's just yes. managed differently. It's a different form of residential. And we are chronically undersupplied when it comes to residential in in, in Australia. So Absolutely. I, I don't see how it's not going to work it's a place to live that's effectively it it's just run mm. differently and, and quite frankly run a heck of a lot better and yes <laughs> there are you know there's premiums because people because some of these buildings have you know there's amenity wall you have some of these buildings i've been into now there's a podcast studio we can go and sit and have a and do this sit together yeah, the same room awesome. and do this yeah. and <laughs> so we should actually look mm. at that we'll ask one of these clients to let us use their room um, yeah yeah well, they should put one in the pub we, we've, we've been talking about putting one in a pub <laughs> Yes, or a golf course. Uh, we yeah, on a golf that. course. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so, but there doesn't have to be these amenities, and then charge fifteen, twenty percent compared to the private rental market. You don't have to have all these mm-hmm. amenities. It can just be a straightforward tower with not a lot of men, not a lot of bells and whistles, but just run professionally. So mm-hmm. it, again, it it doesn't have to be three hundred unit towers with nightclubs on the roof and swimming pools. It doesn't have to be that. <laughs> it can be fifty unit buildings with no amenities. Maybe I don't know. Maybe a shower maybe a toilet in the in the basement in the car park things like mm. that that's all it has to be so it, it's not just only premium towers with very high rents with heaps of amenity it can be an everyday building as well that we already have just run a different way so i think mm. people get fixated on this one type of filter and asset whereas you can build whatever you like it's it's more mostly about the running of the thing mm. that differentiates it from the private rental market. I'm, I'm curious too. I mean, you know, I, I know we were wrapping up, but I'm just thinking, looking at the data from the NAB about, you know, uh, bank pre-commitments, uh, sorry, mm. pre-sale commitments that they require from developers before they, you know, release funding for construction, all this. Do you think there's sort of um, 
space there or, or opportunities there where a built-to-rent operator can come in and go, all right, so you're doing 300 apartments. I'll take 100 off. I'll commit, I'll, I'll, I'll commit to buying that 100 for my operations, um, you know, mm. or, or whatever it is. So then you have, would it work where a building is half private, sort of, sort of this much private market and then, or, or, or private market rentals or owner occupiers, but then like another component of it is like, let's say 100 apartments of that is in built to rent, but it helps I, the developer overcome that that uh, pre sales. Um, kind hurdle. of like a hybrid, hybrid. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is that, has that been? Have you seen that in the US or the UK? I haven't. Not that I can think of. Mm. There's, there's a. I mean, there's no real reason why you can't. But the the buildings they tend to be designed a bit differently. Okay. Built to sell, built to sell, and built to rent. Um, mm. Because you're holding these things, you need to hold these things, you know, 10, 20 years or whatever. You, you need to build them at a, a much higher quality mm. because you have to maintain them. So if something breaks, you have to fix it because you're still owning it. So the, the quality tends to be a little bit higher. Mm-hmm. And you have things like, you know, wider hallways, wider doorways, things like that, because it is a rental. So there's a higher amount of churn than in, in, in built to sell in, in theory. Mm. Um, it's depending on the... A lot of buildings have like big basement areas where they store fridges, white goods, et cetera. So if, the, if one does break down the new unit, they can just quickly swap it out while they get that one repaired. So you need that kind of stuff. So there are certain design aspects that make build to rent assets slightly different from build to sell. Um, mm-hmm. And you need, you need, in order to make these things and to make, get your returns, you need to build them in a, in a, in a different, in a different way. And People are happier to live in, to rent in smaller places. They're not happier to buy smaller places. So generally with sizing, you, you build to rent a units are slightly smaller okay. and they're equivalent built to sell because you can get away with it. Mm. Um, and so it's all entirely possible, but in order to make these things really work, you're better off building them to a certain design mm. spec. Okay. The other thing down here, of course, is the tax implications. Because there's certain yes. criteria you have to hit or have to meet in order to, for, in order for your building to be classified as built to rent, and therefore get that 50% discount on land tax, be able to hold it under MIT. Certain criteria needs to be hit. I'm not sure you're going to be able to get that just as an investor buying 100 units in a 300 unit building. Mm-hmm. I don't think you'll be able to to get that. So I mean, it's not a it's not a terrible idea at all, and it it is possible to make it work. It's whether or not there's a difference between making something thrive and survive you know you can make it survive i'm sure and get a healthy return that way but if you really want to make the thing thrive and sing you're better off designing it from 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 scratch i'd say yeah no that makes total sense <laughs> no, it's evolving. Was, Who knows? yes it is evolving well the, the, it's, it's interesting uh, it will be something to watch I, I suppose add that to our um now that you know changes us through we'll, we'll probably be talking about it a lot more in future podcasts not probably definitely will uh, definitely <laughs> definitely finally after all these years of me banging on about it it's now yes there's a lot there's a lot more happening i'm very happy about it. yeah yeah well thank you very much for joining me today ben it was very insightful as always pleasure to have you oh pleasure was all mine nelson thank you so much 